0: Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire, and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Welcome everybody. My guest today is Chris Hurd, the founder and CEO of First Space, an all-in-one provisioning platform for remote teams to set up, manage, maintain, and retrieve all the physical equipment they need to do great work at home. Chris, welcome to the podcast.
1: Good to be here, Lynn.
0: Well, Chris, you're building a remote work company in probably the biggest shift to remote work we could have ever expected. So perfect timing. would love to hear a little bit about your story and how you got in, interested in the space in the first place.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's almost by mistake we built the business. We never set out intending to build a, a picks and shovels business, sort of helping companies as they rushed to San Francisco for the the sort of gold rush but yeah we we started out building a financial technology company um we decided we were going to be remote for for a number of different reasons so number one i never wanted to commute anymore i wanted to spend more time with my family i've got two little girls my cto was about to have his first child he wanted to be there to see him walk for the first time and laugh for the first time um and we also knew that we'd be more cost efficient and we'd be more talented the challenge came when we tried to get that team set up. We realized how expensive that was, how time-consuming it was, stuff wouldn't turn up, people would leave, and it was impossible to, to reclaim that equipment, retrieve that equipment. And it just turned out it was a problem we experienced for ourselves that we wanted to solve, and we had the right skill set to, to solve it. In a prior life, I'd been putting the same equipment on oil and gas platforms in the most remote places on the planet, um, and my CTO had done cybersecurity A. For the, for the US military in their most remote places globally. So we built that for ourselves. Um, we weren't smart enough to realize that that was an issue that a lot of other remote teams were struggling with. So we got back to building the FinTech product. And basically by September last year, we finally came to the realization that customer acquisition cost and FinTech's too high and pivoted. So yeah, in retrospect, we wish we were three months earlier. <laughs> Did you growing up always
0: want to be a founder or is this something that was uh, exploration later in your career?
1: Yeah, we we lived through a lot of trials and tribulations as a a family growing up. So my dad owned a fish and chip restaurant, which if you've ever been in the UK, you know how much we love our fish and chips. And we went through some hard times where he he fell out with his business partner when we were 10 or 11. And yeah, he ends up becoming a taxi driver for 10 years. It's a, a real struggle. So we went from having a fairly affluent upbringing to a real struggle. And I think both those things always stuck with me. And yeah, I think everyone at some point wants to emulate their parents. And I, I always thought it was pretty cool to, to own your own business.
0: I saw also you studied architecture, which is an interesting, interesting choice. And then also evolution. I'm curious whether that still has a piece of what you're doing now because you're touching physical things in physical mm. buildings.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's funny. I, I always thought I wanted to be an architect, and I think I realized pretty quickly when I was studying that I was entirely wrong. Like, I'm two years in a six year degree, and I'm like, I do not want to be an architect anymore. But at the time, I had this like realization that actually, architect, architects a great generalist, like business degree. It's all about taking the historical precedent, reinventing it with the modern technology, and creating new things. And I think, in many respects, that's what every great founder does. You look at Spotify is the reinvention of peer-to-peer sharing in Napster. You look at Uber is the reinvention of the taxi industry. You look at, I don't know, Microsoft as the reinvention of IBM's mainframe computer. So yeah, I, I guess that that was always something that stuck with me. And yeah, clearly physical realm is uh, is that the main.
0: I grew up in Chicago, in a specific area of Chicago, which was the home and studio of Franklin Wright. And so oh, wow. growing up... I thought I wanted to be an architect for a long time too, and I still have a fascination with how things are designed and how buildings are designed, how materials are designed, things like that. So I uh, I appreciate that.
1: It, it, here's a, here's a book for you if you if you geek out on stuff like that. There's there's a series and it's called Transmaterial. I think there's four different volumes, but it's like it's like wild. They've got like air blowing concrete. Like it's just if you're a geek in and stuff like that, it's super super cool.
0: Amazing! I will definitely check that out. <laughs> So you pivot the company from a fintech to now being solely focused on equipment for remote work and and focusing around remote work. Talk to us a little bit about what the product actually does today and who you're serving.
1: Yeah, so we basically help companies of any size. We've got clients that are startups, medium-sized businesses. We're progressing with large publicly listed tech companies through to legacy incumbents with hundreds of thousands of employees. And what we effectively enable them to do is single-click provisioning of all the equipment remote workers need at home. So everything from desks and chairs, monitors, hardware, machines, pre-installation of the image on the machine before it arrives, and everything in between that. So the company effectively comes on, creates a catalog of goods that their their workers will, will be able to choose from, and that's all they need to handle. We take care of everything else, the shipping, the maintenance, the repairs, the collections, the upgrades. And then on the worker side, we obviously empower them with the personalization to make that their own. So they get the catalog the companies let them choose from, but you get to choose, do you prefer a Mac or a, a Dell machine? what type of monitor, what size of chair, sorry, what color a chair suits your home, what size of desk suits the space that you've got. Um, so it's basically a two-sided uh, platform for the company and then the worker.
0: And have you seen a lot of decisions to do this for employees being driven by retention concerns, ergonomic concerns? I know personally, I'm pretty obsessed with ergonomics and I I will literally travel with my trackpad and keyboard and I put my computer up on boxes or whatever I need to do. Uh, but I can imagine people now are going from having an ergonomic setup at their office to being hunched over, having you know wrist pain, back pain, shoulder pain, things like that.
1: Yeah, and I think it's something people take for granted, right? Like you, you just ignore how inane the office is. You don't recognize that that Herman Miller Aeron chair costs a thousand dollars, and that's the reason that you don't have back pain. So I think the situation is that companies panicked in the first part. Obviously, like this is a global pandemic as a catalyst for existential change, accelerated probably remote work trends by 10 or 15 years overnight. So there was none of those considerations up front. It was just, how can we maintain continuity? How can workers keep working from home? Now we're starting to see the transition into what you're talking about. How can we provide a better experience? How can we provide a better remote culture? And that then transitions into all those things. So the ergonomics, How can we use this as a perk to attract people and retain people? And I think what we'll see pretty quickly is this remote work dilemma of sorts, which says companies who don't provide a great experience won't be able to keep their people because they'll lose them to people who do 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 those things better than they do. Yeah,
0: And I would imagine it's still probably costing a company way less to provide a super
1: premium setup at home
0: versus having an office space. Is that accurate? um
1: if if yeah if you to provide the best setup at home like desk chair dual monitor setup and, and throw a coffee machine into that as well why not a monthly coffee bean subscription you're at worst going to be 10x cheaper per office space so you're talking $1500 wow. to set up at home $15000 for someone to have that space in, in in an office and you know as well as i do if you're in san francisco it could be forty five thousand dollars per person. So it could be thirty X cheaper. It's just almost unbelievable to think of the cost benefit of transitioning to remote.
0: That becomes essentially a no-brainer. That's that's fascinating. Mm- you know, one thing that I've personally been a huge admirer of is your mastery of Twitter as a, a growth <laughs> channel for the company. And so I was curious whether this is something that you had always been using, whether this was a new discovery for you, and really how you built up such a massive wait list and presence on social media.
1: Yeah, Twitter is funny. Like, it was, it was something I never really... Tried until two or three years ago. I I spent a, a few years writing longer posts, so longer blogging on Medium. My grew my following on there at thirty five or forty thousand. I don't know, but it was always longer form stuff because I could read things and I could sort of use that as a, a a platform for exploring my own thinking. As I became a founder, you you become time constrained, so shorter form pieces became far easier. And I think Twitter just it's it, it's funny it's like the modern forum like the modern Greek forum where you can just meet incredible people that you're never going to meet in in nor- normal life so I had to take what I learned in writing long form stuff and try and adapt that to create things that were compelling and yeah trying trying to design tweets that are visually appealing is bizarrely has a, a large effect on how like viral those things go which yeah I think i've I've, I've grown pretty good at.
0: Any other things you've learned that have worked well outside of the the
1: creating the cool visual effects within the tweet? Um, give credentials. People will sort of lean into what you're saying a little bit more when you say, this is what I'm doing, and this is the reason why you should potentially listen. Um, keep tweet threads to somewhere between 17 and 20. Um, and if you're going to link, always put the link at the end. Yes, makes definitely
0: a lot of sense. People don't like things that are just purely promotional. Yeah. And as you've started working with companies of all sizes and all industries, what have you learned about how people are thinking, I guess, at the beginning of the pandemic of what they were thinking in terms of remote work and return to normalcy? I'm using air quotes here. uh, And then how they're thinking now.
1: Yeah. I I think the biggest difference and the biggest switch that's happened, I think we've actually spoke about this before, is pre-pandemic, this was a transition being driven by great talent. So you're going to go and work for someone else. You're going to say, I want remote working as an option. And either they're going to say yes or no. And the only reason you're going to go there is because of that. This was never something that was going to be driven by companies now, because they were forced into it, they know that remote work works. And it, we, we spoke about the financial aspects before. It doesn't make economic sense to return to, to an office. And I think in many respects, this is a replay of um, bricks and mortar retail versus e-commerce, exactly the same thing. Like the reason why office-first companies won't be competitive against remote-first companies is the same reason that e-commerce beat um, bricks and mortar. Um, the only thing I guess that pushes back on that or, or what, what's what's different is, um, how do you do that efficiently? And I think that's the big concern companies have got. They, they know that they're going to be more remote, but the question is like, how remote? Are we going to be hybrid? Are we going to be fully remote? Are we going to be remote first? There's just so many different variations that everyone's considering.
0: How do you think things are going to play out for uh, for the vast majority of companies?
1: Uh, the vast and, and I would caveat the, this with Clearly, companies that talk to me and talk to first base are self-selecting into remote. So at large, they're going to be more remote than companies in general. But at the same time, we spoke to a fairly large number of companies. I would say most companies will move to a hybrid model of sorts. So they'll let people work from home two to four days a week. They'll expect people to come into the office one to two days a week. When that happens, I think they'll go increasingly remote because they'll realize that people don't need to be in the office that much. And actually, the preference is that people don't want to be there in the first place. Like 90% of people never want to go back to an office again full time. Um, 50% of people never want to go back to an office ever, ever again. So I think this is something that that really talent's going to dictate to those companies, regardless of what they want.
0: Have you seen any differences among startups versus mid-markets versus enterprise or different industries, or has it been pretty consistent?
1: That, that's that's the most surprising thing. I, I, the most surprising thing is how little difference there is between everyone. So startups are probably more remote than the, ar- the average large company. But what was most surprising to me is that we hear the same problems from early stage companies as 1,000-person tech companies, as 100,000 people um, banking organizations. There's obviously small idiosyncrasies between them, but for the most part, what's most surprising is just like the, the universal issues that they're all facing.
0: Mm. Makes sense. It's, it's interesting, actually, but uh, this has been such a forced change on behalf of every company that I think people have to adapt. And it's been interesting just on my end of watching our portfolio companies. It felt like at the beginning, it was a rough pull off the band-aid and everyone's forced to do it. But the longer you are in a remote work setting, the more you realize the wheels don't fall off the bus. People are still productive. You can still get business done. All the things that everyone was so worried about haven't happened and workers realize they like it. So I, I do think it's, it's one of those things where the forced eight to nine months that we've had so far has actually been beneficial for the lasting change as opposed to things going back to normal.
1: Yeah. And I, I, think I, I think I stole this verbatim from one of your tweets, actually, which is habits and behaviors that, that would never have happened have calcified over the last eight or nine months. And that's exactly what we're seeing. It doesn't matter if you're a tech company, you're a legacy incumbent. It's just fundamentally changed the world. And where I think a lot of people speak about the future of work. What we really need to be talking about is the future of living because that's the real intangible benefits that we're getting from this. Like you're, you're where you are just now, I'm in Scotland. Does that preclude me from accessing opportunity? Not at all. Like now, like companies are going to trust that they can hire great talent almost universally because it is spread universal. It's not that you can just hire the best person in a 30 mile radius of, of San Francisco. Like, that's just irrational beyond belief, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely
0: agree. I do think that I have a rule of three time zones, <laughs> meaning I find that anything that goes beyond three time zones of employees yeah. tends to get very challenging. I've had the experience of trying to work from San Francisco with a team in Israel where you overlap literally zero working hours, even you know California is challenging with Europe in general. But there are now people across the globe who are incredibly talented at all types of work. And so you can go vertically and you know go kind of up the map uh, in terms of
1: longitude. So qu- question for you, because this is industry you're in, like how much of the transition from SF to Miami, ignoring the taxation benefits, because clearly that's an aspect to it. But how much of that do you think is that time zone issue of, we can make five hours to Europe work, we can't make eight hours to Europe work. Like it just you just can't do it.
0: Oh, I think negligible. I don't think that's a factor at all. I yeah. think people are moving to Texas and Florida because of the tax benefits and also the weather. Uh, I, I And their cities, so they have the amenities of cities. They have enough tech to make it interesting. So there's interesting people. But I have yet to hear of anybody's rationale for moving to Florida as we're closer to Europe.
1: Interesting. So to to, to give you some context on some of the conversations we have with companies related to time zones, three to five hours is the maximum that companies are comfortable with. So New York to London, it's not great, but you can make it work like three o'clock in the afternoons, 10 o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the afternoon being eight o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning doesn't work. So that's, that's, I think we're seeing the same thing there as well.
0: Yeah. Well, you've had a bunch of super interesting predictions on the future of work in general. Some of them are more controversial and radical than others. What have been some of your more radical ones?
1: Oh, radical ones! Um, I don't know. I, I I feel like they're all because I wrote them. I th- I think they're all like super obvious. <laughs> have there been pushback on any where people disagree? uh people i i don't know about the predictions i the things that people get really upset about is when i talk about the quality of life upgrade Mm. typically from men typically from older men and they're like what about all the people that get their social contact at work and if i say well actually is it a good thing that your employer's hr is selecting the people you spend most time with and they're like well no that's not the truth i've got friends that i made at work And i'm like that's that's not what what i'm saying like that's absolutely true but Should that be where you get the majority of your social interaction? Appendage to that is, is it a good thing that your strongest social tie is the continued economic success of said employer? And people get upset about that as well. So uh, it's funny. I think the the office has been great for certain people, right? If you're loud, you're male, you're white, you're a little bit obnoxious, you're loud, you can progress rapidly inside those organizations. For most other people, the office isn't a great place. Like, really difficult if you've got um, any sort of physical limitation that's, that makes it difficult to get into work. And there's a whole host of things that, like, if you're a single parent, you're caring for family. So, in many ways, like, the office has disqualified a whole host of people who are world class, by the way. Like, these aren't just like random work, these are great people that should be employed who just find it difficult to work in offices. And I think. Certain demographics struggle with that opinion.
0: I've been obsessed for a very long time with this concept of like forced serendipity, meaning so much about your life is around proximity. So where did you grow up? Who is your family? Who do, where did you go to school? Where is your workplace? Those are the people you spend the most time with, and that dictates a lot of behavior and thoughts and, and just ways you live. And I think that it's going to be interesting to watch over the next few years as people are spending more time in their communities, you still need to go and find people. I think you know human connection is very important to us as a species. And I'm pretty bullish on this revert back to who do I want to spend my time in based off of community? So finding the clubs, finding the, you know, if you're uh, into faith organizations, sporting organizations, whatever that is, but creating your social circle, not based off of who you work with and you see for eight to 10 hours a day, but what do you care about? And can you find people within your community that care about those things too? I personally like in real life experiences. I kind of hope that, you know, the younger generations will continue to. We'll see. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that meshes with one of the predictions, which is a renaissance of hobbies. So I think the office has done basically what you alluded to just now. It replaced the church in many respects in people's homes, which was the center of the community. And yeah, I think the office occupying that place is, is problematic. So I, yeah, I hope the same thing. I hope there's a renaissance of bowling clubs and knitting clubs and and, and boot clubs and clearly there's gonna be um virtual alternatives to that but I think that's that's what people need. Like there are there is like a societal issue around meaning and isolation and loneliness. Has the office made that better or made it worse? I, I'd argue it's made it worse. What we really need are these deep, deep, meaningful relationships that that you get from the places that you mentioned.
0: I do think there is an element though, especially if you're not at a very small startup where you don't actually do work with 90 plus percent of your colleagues, yet you find the people who you have similar interests in or get along with well, and you have lunch with them, you go on coffee chats with them, you spend time at happy hours with them. And they're providing a layer of social connection that has actually nothing to do with work and now if you're not going into the office that needs to be replaced and you know it could be through hobbies or something but i think there's an interesting concept around what would co-working look like where you're going into a place based off of where you choose to live and you're sitting with 30 to 50 people and you become friendly with them and you know have that social connection you just don't work at the same company how is that really any different than your experience today at a 1000 person company
1: yeah, I I'd, I'd, I'd argue that that's better because actually the likelihood is that you've got more in common than in the other scenario, and that's that's really what you want. Like, I I say a few things on Twitter which are purposely provocative. Like, I I don't necessarily like fully pull like fully back some of that stuff, and other times it's just to create conversation. But absolutely, I think if you're self-selecting for certain places in the world like if you're in Hawaii you're probably there for the weather or surfing or something like that so the likelihood that you're around, or you're in Colorado and you love skiing the likelihood that you're around similar people with interests outside of work I think is higher than the way things are just now
0: yeah i think that's very fair one you know one pushback i've heard a lot on remote work is the fact that oftentimes for people who are ambitious and who are going to play the political game and try to rise up within a company, it's proximity to executives. So whether you're young or middle management, that's an important element of career progression. What are you seeing around that? And, and do you worry that that is going to be a major issue for younger people who don't necessarily already have that advancement in career?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think... It's easy to project that as an issue. Um, and I, I think, look, I, I do have concerns about younger people being able to learn through osmosis. I think the pushback I have on that, and I, I say it just to, be de- to play devil, devil's advocate here more than anything else, is young people, like don't save young people from things that you don't know that they find problems with. Like I see a lot of older people saying, well, we need our younger people to come in to learn from their executives. And I'm like, okay, but how many of them have told you that? not like it's the same thing with the water cooler we need the we need the water cooler okay tell me tell me the three biggest problems you've personally seen solved around the water cooler I, literally i was on a radio show the other day where where the guy says that to me and i'm like okay tell me the three biggest he says not me my daughter tells me this i'm like okay so you've never firsthand seen anything solved around the water cooler um but that's an aside so th- I, I think there are issues around like progression i think what will happen is wherever the executives are is what the culture of the company will be. So if you look at someone like GitLab, is it harder to progress in GitLab than it is in an office-based company? Or are the metrics that GitLab use to judge progression just more transparent? And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. If you look at, should politics play into progression, or should ultimately your performance play into progression? I, I don't know the answer to that. I, th- I think that's something we need to figure out.
0: It's an interesting frame of it, and I also like I like you kind of poking holes in or uh, pushing back and all the things that people typically throw out as some of the potential harms of remote work. One thing that could be really interesting to see is whether remote and more transparency around progression and job letters and things like that help women, people of color, minorities. Because a lot of times, to your point, the people who do well in an office scenario are the extroverted white males. And this could potentially force companies to be much more transparent and track people based off metrics, not based off of who likes who.
1: Yeah. And I I, I would take that step further, not based on who you drink with out of hours, because everyone knows that's how progression decisions have been made for the last 120 years, for however long the office has existed. And I, I think it's absolutely true. I think um, innovation happens when you've got a more diverse and inclusive workforce, has the office enabled that to the extent that it should? Absolutely not. Like it's been horrendous for certain people to work in. Like even now, you, you the people that are, are that scream at me in social media posts, you you know exactly who they are, and you're like, have you ever spoke to your team about what they feel about the office? Because the vast majority of people don't want to be there as much as you do.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I'm curious to you know you are in the center of a market shift and probably getting more market pull than almost any company I can think of. What as a founder advice do you have for other companies who are going through this kind of rapid pull hypergrowth growth phase?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. There's, there's so much. I, I think it's just like being able to keep up with demand when it's, uncomfortable is something that you you just can't prepare yourself for like we 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 can never prepare ourselves for the fact that nine thousand people signed up to learn more about this company with 11 million employees across them what i think we were super purposeful about and what we done really well was have as many conversations as we can to try and learn what we don't know like i think we went in obviously with assumptions we had an experience ourselves we tested that with the large companies that we were talking to about the last company that we were building. So we really built out a thesis as to why why this product was necessary. But I think it was super important to test that on as many people as possible to make sure that we had product market fit. And we tried to condense that period as much as we could to have as many of those conversations as quickly as we could to continue to learn what we didn't know, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Any uh, any kind of surprising learnings uh, going through the founder journey in
1: a, a hot market? Um, <laughs> I think just what we spoke about before the call, like it's it's as as, as uncomfortable having like demand as having no demand. Like stress is stress at, at the end of the day. So yeah, I think something that I try to be mindful about is do the things that I know enable en- enable me to stay in the right headspace. So if I'm not working out like hard for 30 to 45 minutes every day, I know that my mental health's going to suffer. So just make sure to do those things even when you're going through tough periods has being, I think, the best thing that I've done personally.
0: Yeah, I'm very happy that more people are paying attention to mental health, physical health, just overall well-being. And we're kind of removing this workaholic, sleep four hours a night being a, a thing that we, we promote and <laughs> we brag about. I hope that changes, especially among founders.
1: Totally agree.
0: Well, Chris, this has been amazing. The last question that I always like to ask is, have you been given a piece of advice in your life or career that are words you live by or something that's really stuck with you?
1: Um, I'm going to be really like corny and cheesy and go back to something that my parents always told me, which was, I don't care if it's the the, the subject that you you hate the most, or it's the one that you love the most. Like, for the time that you're there, you might as well give it a hundred percent because otherwise you're just wasting your time. You're wasting your own time, and the other one's always been like treat other people the way that you want to be treated. So yeah, I'm going to go old school with with that. Oh, well, those are great.
0: Where can people learn more about you in First Base?
1: Um, First Base, First Base HQ dot com. Um, me personally, Chris underscore Heard on Twitter.
0: Awesome. Well, I will continue to follow all of your amazing tweet threads because truly you're the master. And so I'm, I'm learning from you every time. And uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you.
1: Always Elaine, appreciate your time. Thanks, Chris.